go ahead and take a seat, please. Uh, this morning we're going to be beginning a new study in the book of Exodus, and so you can be turning there to Exodus chapter 1. And, and I want you to imagine what the ideal life looks like for you. If, if God gave you the pen and said, here, you get to write the whole rest of your story, how would you write that story? I think some of us would see that ideal life like a perpetual summer break. No teachers, no assignments, no reason to wake up early in the morning. Others of us, perhaps those who are a little bit older, might see it as an eternal retirement. No bosses telling you what to do. No more reasons to stay up late with stress. No more early morning meetings. And I think one of the things as we begin to think about what the ideal looks like, we begin to see that as something that involves freedom for us. And the removal of anything that might limit our freedom. See, we don't like things that limit our freedom, do we? Like a law that tells you what you can and cannot do. People say, I love Montana because I can ride my motorcycle without somebody telling me I have to wear a helmet. Because we don't like laws that tell us what to do. We don't like being a part of communities where somebody can come by and says, well, the homeowners association says your grass can only be a quarter of an inch long. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like the burdensome demands of a boss who says you need to get this job done in five days and you say, five days? That's impossible. Or overbearing teachers who say the paper has to be 20 pages and this is only 19 pages. Go and do it again. We don't like boundaries, rules, and restrictions. So when we start to think about the ideal life, we take all of those things away. And as we read Exodus this morning, we, I think, will discover that God has his own picture of what an ideal life looks like for us. And I'll simply say that you might be surprised how God defines that a little bit differently than we may be tempted to do. And so I want us to begin by looking at Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7, where the text says, But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now, Exodus chapter 1, as you read it, is oozing with something called irony. Irony, of course, if you remember from your English classes, is when two opposite things are put together in a way to get our attention. So this is ironic. Nothing is written in stone. Do you see the irony there? And so our text, in a very similar way, is ironic. And so if you look at this verse, we, we see these four kind of keywords I want you to pay attention to in 1-7. The word fruitful, the word multiplied, land, and filled. And as I point out those four words, you may just be having one of those deja vu moments, thinking, I feel like I've read these words somewhere before in Scripture. And of course, we can go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same word there and subdue it. So what God has wanted, what God has desired 
is for this to happen, that one day people would be fruitful. They would multiply and they would fill the earth. And so if we've been reading our Bibles from Genesis 1 up to Exodus uh, chapter 1, verse 7, we are expecting this to be a story about good news. We, we would expect the text to say, and finally what God hoped for happened. And everyone lived happily ever after. We would say this is exactly since creation what God desired. This is the, the very thing that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He said, this is the thing that's going to happen. And in Exodus, it has happened. And now we think ease and simplicity because God has finally got his way. The Israelites are now as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet we find that there seems to be something ironic happening as this people are growing. In the text that uh, Hayden read for us, we come to find that as their numbers increase, also their oppression increases. Each time the Pharaoh sees the people growing, he ratchets up the intensity of their oppression. First, it begins by this, this forced, hard labor. Second, he begins to instruct the midwives... To, to kill the baby boys. And then third, he says to anyone, if a baby boy is born, they need to go into the Nile. Every time he sees them growing, he becomes far more oppressive. And I think that we'd figure out pretty quickly that this is not the ideal life that people would have imagined once they finally were fruitful and multiplied and are now filling the earth. And in fact, if God were given an evaluation score of how well he is doing of the God of these people who are flourishing, I suspect he wouldn't get a very good annual review, would he? This is where God wanted us to be, where he called us to be. And we will find out very quickly that God's ways are not our ways, and God's plans are not our plans. And as we look through Exodus, we will discover a God who may have a very different plan for us. And as we read of the oppression, I think we should be wondering, when will God show up? I mean, God is here. You'll see three times God is mentioned, but in a very behind-the-scenes way. And when God does show up, we have an expectation of what He will do. Have you ever felt like in your life that, that you say, well, if God was really here, He would? We always have a sense of what God should or could or ought to be doing. And we evaluate God's performance based on our ability to see, is God doing the things that we expect or long for or desire? And I think it's this very expectation of what God will do when he shows up that leads to one of the greatest misunderstandings of what the book of Exodus is about, of what life in Christ is about, and what God longs for. So what do I think we misunderstand sometimes about Exodus? If you look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, we get a sense of what life is like. The Egyptians became ruthless, imposing tasks on the Israelites, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that, they were, that were imposed on them. And the words in highlighted that you see up here are actually the same Hebrew word. For service, They were in service or they were in subjection. And five times that seems to be the problem. And for us, people who love no limits or no restrictions, we think that the solution to the problem must have something to do with all of these limits that are placed on the lives of people. And so if we were to ask the average person on the street, what is the problem with this text? I think we might hear versions of the following two answers. Number one, 
They worked hard at making things for someone else. A lot of us don't have a problem with working hard as long as who gets to reap the rewards of that effort. We do. And so we say what needs to be made right is that no longer they ought not to be doing this. The second thing we see is that the work they do is subject to the will of another. Imagine somebody telling you when you wake up where you should go and what you should do. And so we think when God's going to show up, he's going to find a solution to these two problems that we've identified. And so we have our own solutions. We think that God will no longer uh, require this hard work from people anymore. Or if he does require hard work, at least you'll get to have the fruit of your own labor. And certainly when God shows up, nobody's going to be telling anybody what to do anymore. And I think that's what we expect of Exodus. The solution will be the dream of our ideal life. No bosses, no rules. No assignments, no one telling me what to do. We think that this is going to be a plot of freedom and of liberation. This will be, for the people of God, the declaration of independence. No longer ruled or subject by another. But let me ask, what do you think of when you think of freedom? If you are like the average person, most of us view freedom as the removal of some sort of external limits. To be free is to have nothing that will get in the way of getting what you desire or hope for. You are free only when you can do whatever you want. You are free when no one can tell you what to do. Isn't adolescence about the journey into freedom? Did you know that a part of what happens when kids are born is the mother's womb can no longer contain the space of this fetus and a child is born and the teen years is just that happening again. The home is no longer big enough for me and I have to be birthed into something larger because I find home to be too restrictive when mom and dad say, you must be in bed by nine o'clock. But mom, no, I will not permit you to date that boy. But dad... We think freedom is about getting outside of the place where no one will ever say no to us anymore, when no one ever tells us what to do, and you're only free when you can get rid of all of those restrictions and boundaries. And so I think it's with that understanding of freedom as we read a text about people imposing tasks, making lives bitter, forcing them into every kind of field labor, we think that when God shows up, these people will never have to do anything anymore that somebody else would tell them. We have a biased view of what a happy life looks like and entails. We love the notion of freedom so much that we believe that that's what God has come and done in Exodus. And I suspect that we would be surprised to find how the story really ends. And so we're going to take a little bit of a field trip here together. We're going to be cross-cultural into the kind of the, the latter desolate regions of Exodus. People love the early parts of Exodus because it's narrative, and you get near the end, and boy, it's awfully burdensome there. So we're going to go, we're going to get in that tour bus, and we're going to look, and we're going to see, is there anything that strikes us as odd in what we see in these latter parts of the book of Exodus? So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Now, my gift to you this morning is that I will not read all of Exodus chapter 40. I am not sure you could endure it. But I do want to read the first three verses. And as I read these, see if you can hear a repeated phrase. The Lord spoke to Moses 
On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and you shall screen the Ark with the curtain. And on and on this goes through the first 15 verses of chapter 40. And the word that I see, being reading from the New Revised, is you shall is repeated 14 times in 15 verses. Now, you may have a different translation that doesn't say you shall, but as you read these words, it's pretty clear somebody is telling them what to do. And over and over again, it is repeated. And then in verses 16 through verses 33, we have another repeated phrase, which I'll let you again read on your own time. But here we have, just as the Lord had commanded, repeated eight times in 16 verses, 50% of the verses. So we think what's going to happen We think all of a sudden God's going to show up and now these people get to do whatever they want to do. So when we get to the end of Exodus, did we solve the problem that the work they're doing is subject to the will of another? Oh no, somebody is still telling them what to do. You shall, you shall, you shall, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. That problem was not solved at all. They are still being told what to do. Okay, well, what about this notion that they're working hard at making things for someone else? I mean, surely that goes away. And if you look at chapters 36 through 38, I'm just going to read the little subtitles again in the New Revised Standard. Construction of the tabernacle, the making of the Ark of the Covenant, the making of the tablet for the bread of presence. Sorry, the tablet. I don't think they had iPads or anything like that. I think that's table there. The making of the lampstand, the making of the altar of incense, the anointing, the making of the anointing oil and the incense, making an altar of burnt offering, making the court of the tabernacle. So are they no longer making things for someone else? Wait a minute. They are still making things for someone else. And so when we get to the end of Exodus, we think, whoa, whoa, whoa. Has a problem really been solved? Somebody's still telling them what to do. They are subject to the will of another, and they are making things not for themselves, but they are making things for someone else. And it should beg the question for us as contemporary freedom-loving Americans, well, then what is the good news in Exodus? If it's not freedom, if it's not liberation, where do we find any good news? And I think we find that in looking at what changes from the beginning to the end of Exodus. And the first thing I want you to note is that their service to God is voluntary. Unlike Pharaoh, where they were subdued or forced into it, here the people are choosing. So freedom is not about surpassing or overcoming or overturning or overruling or ignoring restrictions. Freedom is found in consenting to or submitting to something that is outside ourselves. Somebody said it this way, you cannot truly be free unless you accept that you will not ever be free. We choose to live our lives in submission to something, and the ultimate calling for our life is to find the right thing to submit to, to to find that which is external that is worth submitting ourselves to. And, And in one sense, we know that's true. I mean, we are all subject to the laws of nature, aren't we? And imagine if you spend your whole life trying to push against the laws of nature and say, I'm only ever going to be happy if I'm no longer subject to the laws of nature. You will never be happy, will you? Until you recognize the world is created, embedded with these rules, these restrictions. And we find the right thing to submit ourselves to. And and even if you think about marriage, I mean, there's all these ball and chain sort of jokes about marriage, right? 
But on the one hand, isn't there some truth to that? When, when you get married, you are committing and covenanting not to do some things. You are restricting your freedom. Perhaps before marriage, you could play the field. And now as a married person, you are saying no more often. But here's the irony when we live according to subjection to God, is every time we say no, we find our lives are more blessed through the act of saying no to those things. It is in subjection, in, in submitting to even another human person, we find that when we can no longer do everything we want and go everywhere we want, we experience a kind of freedom by giving up certain rights. Perhaps you know that when you have kids, you give up certain freedoms, don't you? We've got a lot of young parents. Uh, when you have a kid, you give up the freedom of being able to sleep through the night without somebody waking you up. You give up the freedom of being able to run to the store real quick. You know, three hours later, you come back in and you look like you've been in a war zone. You give up the freedom of walking past people without them saying, what does that smell? I, mean, I don't know, just babies. There's just all that smell. You give up freedom when you have kids. And yet, in giving up that freedom, you experience a sense of meaning and purpose and joy that you never could have if you did not give up that freedom. See, the change in Exodus is this realization that people are voluntarily submitting themselves to God. Nobody's making them do this, but they, in response to what God has done, have chosen to follow Him. Have willingly said, we will give up everything in order to give the glory to this God who has saved us and rescued us. And the second change from beginning to end that the people become to realize is the nature or character of the one who rules. Or of the master. Uh, if you look at Pharaoh's track record, a Pharaoh is oppressive. He selfishly wants to have control over this population and he wants to oppress them and to put them lower. But, but God's way of dealing with his people is completely different. He, he comes in as a father caring about his beloved children. In the words of Hosea 11:1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. You see, so, so, so we come and we see this father figure who comes and he brings his people out of this bad situation. And they, in response, want to, seek to, long to serve that God because of his character and because of his nature. We find out in Exodus that God enters the picture like a mother eagle who comes and carries her young like on the eagle's wings so that he can bring them to himself. Why would Israel choose to serve God when they've been saved from bondage? Because they believe joyfully celebrating God's deliverance brought them more, not took away from anything from the life they could live in relationship with this covenanted God. So this loving covenant God what does he want of his people? God wants to be with his people. That, that, that's the ultimate movement and momentum of Exodus. He's, he just simply wants to be there with him. Again, in those kind of those desolate regions of the latter parts of Exodus, we have a lot of talk about tabernacle, 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 which is what? God with us. God brings them out because he wants them to be with him. And he, in turn, wants to be with his people. So we find Exodus at the very beginning. God is kind of lurking in the shadows. 
He, he's there, but not in an obvious, prevalent way. And then if you were to read the very ending of Exodus chapter 40, here's verse 38, for example. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. Everywhere they went, they were assured, God is here, God is close, and God is near. That's all he wants from his people is that closeness and nearness. And we find the covenant of the law is what enables that. We find the tabernacle and all those instructions are what enables that. So the people voluntarily, freely serve a God who they believe created the universe, who they believe lovingly pursues them, and who they believe that they could find no greater life than living in subjection to that God. That, I think, is the storyline of Exodus that we'll be exploring and looking over with. And, and as Christians, we say, sometimes it's easy to say, yeah, but that's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Exodus is the good news before there is capital letter good news. Exodus is the story of Jesus before Jesus even comes on the scene. And so Exodus might find itself at the beginning of this journey that the New Testament ends with, but it's all movement in the same direction. The themes and the things we learn about God, they will continue in the New Testament, and they all point to Jesus. I'll give you just a few examples. Exodus, of course, we just saw, ends with tabernacle. God dwelling with his people. God wanting to be with his people. When we get to the New Testament, what do we find? John tells the story of Jesus. In John 1.14, he says um, that, that Jesus made his dwelling among us. And people who look closely at that recognize the word dwelling is the same word for tabernacle. Jesus made his tabernacle among us. So God's agenda is the same. He wants to be in the midst of his people. And now through Jesus Christ, he can be more intimately connected with his people than ever before. This is a continuation of what we began to experience in the early pages of Exodus. We find a God who still delivers his children from their bondage. Through the cross, God sets us free from our slavery to sin and death. And, and just like the original Exodus story and our own Exodus story, we need to make sure that we don't get the story of the cross wrong. We, we need to be sure that, that God doesn't free us from our sins so that we can live any way we want. No, God frees us from our sins so that we can voluntarily live in submission and subjection to Him. And so I guess the challenge I have for you this week to think about is what God-given boundaries do you need to learn to joyfully submit to? What parts are you regretting or fuming because God doesn't let you do that? What, what God-given responsibilities, if you had the choice, you would just peel away, believing I would just be better off if I didn't have to do that. For some of you, it might be a marriage covenant that you're just tired of keeping. And you think life would be so much better if I could just have control in this one area. For some of you, it might be an opportunity at work that you know you really could get ahead and have less people above you telling you what to do if you just changed a few of those numbers around. And you could finally get out from the gazing eyes of your bosses. Some of you, it might be a child that you welcome into this world with joy and you're finding they're awfully hard to handle. And you wish you just had freedom from that child. It may be a sexual desire that you're trying to justify. 
And so on and on we see that our lives are surrounded by many paths and our culture is telling us you should choose whichever path you want. But our faith is grounded on the assumption that God will make a better choice than any choice we could ever make for ourselves. I read this week the story of a lady named Cheryl and she found herself at one of these crossroads where she felt like freedom was hers to create and orchestrate in any way that she wished. She had been married for several years and woke up and probably isn't the first one and realized she just wasn't happy in her marriage anymore. Her husband, Jeff, she said, wasn't, wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't abusive at all. It was just things just got dry and desolate. And she felt more and more suffocated and wanted so much more a freedom outside of her marriage than she felt like it had. And on the day that the divorce papers went through that her, her husband fought against the whole time, she said she woke up that morning with a thought that kept resonating through her head, today you're free. Today you're free. It didn't take many months before she said, I thought the divorce would fix everything, but the emptiness never really left. I felt fragmented, and the peace I thought I would have, I didn't have. And the freedom I thought would come never came. A few months later, she started attending church with a friend, and she heard about God again. And she realized that that void that was missing in her life wasn't freedom. It wasn't that she needed more freedom. She actually needed somebody who it was worth submitting her life to. That the void was not a void of freedom, but it was a void of subjection. And she decided to fully subject her life to Jesus Christ. And a part of that, she realized, would be her call to make an effort to reconcile with her husband. And for seven long years, that's what she tried on an almost daily basis. Until finally he said, yes, I'll go to dinner with you. Until finally they were remarried. And finally she found herself in the same bondage that she found before. But now it was free and it was liberating because she knew it was what God wanted. My invitation out of the book of Exodus is to look and ask yourself the question, do you believe that when you depend on God, you'll find more joy, more celebration, more gratitude, and more liberation than if you took control of your own life? That, I think, is the trajectory of what we're going to see in Exodus, and that's the invitation, is do we trust God enough to fully submit ourselves to him? And so a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, there's going to be some folks, uh, including myself and some of our elders and other folks uh, in the back as we sing this next song. If you want to pray with someone, and specifically if there's an area of your life you've been saying, I've really been pushing against God's will for my life here. Uh, and, and I want to reconfirm my trust in him. Or perhaps you've never, ever professed your trust in him. Your willingness to say God's ways need to be my ways. God's plans need to be my plans. And I'm willing to submit fully. But if you have any, of, any kind of a need you want somebody to pray with, we invite you to come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song. Oh, Lord, I know.